0: Hello, welcome to Healing Out Loud with me, your host, Jackie Shea. This is a place to relate to the darkest days and be inspired by ultimate triumph. Each week, I interview a brave guest who has extensive experience with illness and or wellness, and hopefully we will leave you inspired to worry Ron, highly informed about something new, and connected to a tribe of amazing humans, because the only way out is through, but it helps to have a tribe walking with you. Happy Monday, you sweet, sweet Things. As I'm recording this, I just want you to know that this entire house stinks of bone broth. It's just stinky with bone broth. Um, just wanted you to know that little fun fact. So you may have noticed that some things have changed. My logo changed. The name has changed from "Too Sick and Naked Healing Out Loud" to simply "Healing Out Loud" with Jackie Shay. Uh, don't you love that logo? Big thanks to my. Dear friend Jason Snell for making that beauty for for me and for us. This change has been in the works for a while. Too Sick and Naked was originally created as the title of my one-woman show. And as it kind of became my blog name and then a podcast name, it felt less and less authentic to who I am and what this show is about. Too Sick and Naked will absolutely stick around for the one-woman show, but what we're doing here is healing, so I hope you can get on board and you love the changes as much as I do. To be clear, nothing about the show is changing, except the title. As well, my website is getting a revamp and is now at the URL jackyshea.com. Please, guys, write to me with any of your thoughts or questions or opinions. I love to hear from my audience, and I want to keep you in the loop. Now, let's have a quick chat about this week's mind-blowing, upsetting, tragic, and also super inspiring episode. I'm so grateful that writer Maya Dusenberry came on to discuss her latest book on gender bias in medicine called Doing Harm, The Truth About How Bad Medicine and Lazy Science Leave Women Dismissed, Misdiagnosed, and and uh, Sick. This book and episode is chock Full of research, stats, and heartbreaking personal stories. We talk about how women got pushed out of medicine, then research, then analysis, and how we suffer for that today. But we also talk about the changes that are happening, how we can support those changes, and about what incredible, badass self advocates women are. I couldn't feel more passionately about this topic. I hope you share this episode with as many people as you can. People should know the facts about why we are where we're at today all right guys let's hit it Hi, this is your host, Jackie Shea, and today I have Maya Dusenberry with me, a journalist, editor of Feministing.com, and author of Doing Harm, The Truth About How Bad Medicine and Lazy Science Leave Women Dismissed, Misdiagnosed, and Sick. You guys, this book is about how gender bias affects the care patients receive. To be clear, women receive poor care, and men receive good care. We will get into the facts, stats, and way to change the system today. Maya, Hi!
1: hi thanks so much for
0: having me oh my god thank you so much for coming on i am so excited to talk to you
1: um
0: so i read your book i just finished your book and it is oh man and i've told everyone to read your book also and i'm gonna keep (laughs) telling everyone to read your book i'm a huge fan um but it was really hard to read i mean it made me cry it made me really angry As a woman who's affected uh, with what you call a contested illness, Lyme disease, Mm -hmm. I related to so many of the women's stories you recount being dismissed, being labeled as a drug seeker or hysterical or stressed and overworked. And to read the history of how we got here, how women have been pushed out of medicine and what an uphill battle it has been to make our experiences heard and true, it was hard to read. Um,
1: yeah, yeah, I believe
0: it. And and I was like you, you know, before I got sick, my relationship to the medical system was as a healthy person. So people complained about insurance, and I thought people complained too much. And <laughs> I always trusted the doctor, and I had no reason not to. Um, and then everything changed for me, as it did for you. So will you tell us a little bit about your own history with, with illness and why you decided to write this book?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, like you, it was. I was really healthy for 26 years, I guess, and um, mostly sort of interacting with the medical system for routine reproductive health care. Um, and as a feminist writer, that was something I had always written about and had a background in, in advocating around that issue. Um, and so sort of thought about women's health through that lens as, as sort of synonymous with reproductive health. Um, and then about five years ago, I developed rheumatoid arthritis and it was it was a very kind of textbook case. So it wasn't my own kind of diagnostic journey was not at all similar, actually, to a lot of the stories that are in the book. Um, it's pretty straightforward and I got diagnosed pretty quickly and in part because of that, I got, you know, early treatment that I think, you know, is, is the reason that I, my symptoms have been in remission for five years, even without medication. So I consider myself super lucky uh, personally, but it also, you know, that experience inspired this going kind of down this path and, and learning about autoimmune diseases and realizing how common they are, how common they are among women and how often patients don't have that experience that I did they go for years and go to many doctors and report really being kind of dismissed and not taken seriously so that was sort of the the impetus to start thinking about it and yeah as i said it was it was sort of shocking to kind of realize how little thought i had given it was really kind of off the radar until that happened even as somebody who you know, is a feminist and thinks about women's health kind of a lot, it was kind of surprising that this issue was not on the radar before that.
0: Right. Yeah. I'm so, so glad that you, that you were inspired to write this book. It's so important. And let's talk about women's health because I love what you say in the book. Like we, and what you just said is that most of us for women's health is synonymous with the uterus and the ovaries and gynecological care, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but Tell us, tell us more, uh, more about women's health and what that means to you.
1: Yeah, so so this has been sort of described as like the bikini medicine approach to women's health and bodies, where medicine has sort of focused on the breast and gynecological tract as as sort of to the extent that it's acknowledged that there are differences between men and women, and it's focused on those things and. You know, that's fine, but it does mean that the a lot of things get overlooked. So one of the things that gets overlooked is a lot of these kind of non-gynological conditions that disproportionately affect women, like autoimmune diseases or chronic pain conditions like fibromyalgia or vulvodynia, um, that have been really, really neglected and are not really kind of seen as women's health issues, even though, given how disproportionately we're impacted by them, they really should be. And then it also kind of leads us to miss the fact that women and men often have different experiences of the same disease. So heart disease is kind of the best example because we have a lot of research in that area that shows that women often have different symptoms than men different risk factors, a whole sort of female pattern of heart disease that we've only kind of recognized in the last 20 years as we started to do that research to see if there are any differences. And so all of that kind of gets dismissed or left out when we're kind of just looking at women's health as reproductive health issues.
0: Right. And what you just said about heart disease, I found this shocking in your book to learn that a lot of women, we actually have different symptoms of a heart attack. Like, it's, yeah. it's not just the typical, oh, chest pain, shooting pain down my, my left arm. Like, I had no right. idea that there were these other symptoms that women have. Will you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So women are more likely to have symptoms that are sort of described as atypical symptoms, which, you know, is we should note that the only reason they're considered atypical is that we've sort of done a lot of the research on heart disease in men. And so the sort of classic textbook symptoms happen to be the ones that are common, more common among men. Um, But women are more likely to experience fatigue or nausea or jaw pain and back pain. um, And in some cases not experience chest pain at all or describe it as like discomfort, not really pain um, so one of the big reasons that there are very clear disparities in treatment when it comes to heart disease is is that sort of lack of awareness about these symptoms um, both on the part of women who often you know don't as, as, as you and I think me before I did this research you know there isn't a really an awareness about that but there also isn't as much awareness as you would think. Among health providers, um, you know, that that sort of research that showed that these symptoms, atypical symptoms are common in women is relatively recent. And so you still have doctors who really aren't kind of tuned into them.
0: And it's so crazy. It's so crazy. So, so tell us, so tell us a little bit, how did women end up getting left out of medicine in this, in this way? I mean, before, before we actually talk about how women get left out of research and analysis, let's talk about sort of the history of how women got bumped out of medicine.
1: Yeah, this was, I thought this was a really interesting history because I think I sort of you know, assume that like, oh, yeah, like, I, I I know that this has been a very historically male dominated profession, like most professions, right? Like, you know, every every profession was male dominated 50 years ago. Uh, but so it was really sort of enraging and also sort of empowering to realize that, like, in this case, actually, you know, before men took over the profession this sort of work like healing work and caregiving you know that was of course women's work in most cultures and and is in some cases um and in the u.s it was sort of women's work for quite a while before the regular doctors um sort of took over and and got a monopoly on the profession Uh, and they first tried to do that in the early 1800s. And at that point there was no public trust in these regular doctors who, you know, really didn't have a lot of science Were using heroic medicine practices like purging and, you know, bleeding and these, (laughs) these treatments that were really pretty horrific and usually not effective, um. So there was actually a backlash to that attempt, um, and a whole sort of popular health movement that, that was sparked and really resisted. The, and these are the, the men.
0: These are the men, right? That were, yeah. Okay. This,
1: these, are, these, are, these are the uh, male regular doctors. Right. Um, and, and this popular women's popular health movement included lots of kind of alternative sex, like homeopaths and, you know, a whole array of different kind of alternative treatments. Um, and women were really involved in that movement. And they also, I guess, by the end of the 19th century, were really pretty making some inroads into the regular profession, pushing to get admitted to medical schools and also just creating their own medical schools. And so it wasn't really until the beginning of the 20th century that the American Medical Association was able to kind of clamp down on the competition by asking the Carnegie Foundation to release us a report, which was called the Flexner Report. And it concluded um, that, you know, there were too many doctors, there, we, they, we didn't need lots of women doctors, we didn't need very many African American doctors. Um, and the result of that report was really that basically all of the irregular sex and all of the women's medical colleges and black colleges had to close and only the medical schools that were teaching in the the regular scientific medicine and happened to be predominantly white men and you know pretty well off well white men those were the only ones who got the enough foundation money to kind of keep going and for the next 50 years women were pretty much entirely excluded just by overt discrimination until the 70s when anti-discrimination laws started to force them to open their doors to women
0: <laughs> it's so I just I just found this so fascinating this is how being a doctor became a job for white wealthy males
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and I mean really it's yeah it was fascinating to realize that there was more there were more female physicians in 1900 um than you know at been the rest of the century until like the 80s or or the 70s at least you know it was it really they kind of had a moment and then the male dominated profession really realized how threatening it was to have women come into the field because there was sort of a demand among female patients for women to be treating them and so I think they they clearly felt very threatened by that competition and and so were very forceful and kind of trying to shut it down
0: right right so so how did women end up getting pushed out of research then because that's the next step that's a, that's another reason why women there's such a strong bias is because we're just an under-researched sex and gender
1: <laughs> yeah absolutely so i think there sort of a couple different factors were involved but to some extent, it was sort of framed as women being excluded for their own good. So in the 70s and 80s, as we were starting to sort of recognize that there were some risks to being involved in clinical studies, and that we should, you know, make sure that research subjects give their informed consent and aren't just kind of treated as guinea pigs. Um, there were some sort of reforms put in place that were really, you know, overdue and, and much needed. But some of them sort of tipped over from that to really kind of paternalistic um, excluding all women of childbearing age from taking part in early phase drug trials, you know, even if they were on birth control, even if they were lesbians, you know, even not really acknowledging that women could make their own sort of informed decisions about the risks. Um, But it was also just the fact that researchers wanted to get a really kind of clean data and so if you included women and men and women have different hormonal cycles you know their menstrual cycle or where they are you know postpartum or postmenopausal could affect study results and so it was easier to just study men and then extrapolate those results to women
0: Right. And so today, I mean, you're talking about all the way up to the 70s and 80s. Like this actually only started changing in the 90s, right, when Bill Clinton signed the Revitalization Act.
1: Yes. Yeah. So in, in 1993, that law was was signed. And, and going forward, theoretically, you know, the when it comes to National Institute of Health funded research, women are supposed to be included. They're supposed to be included in enough numbers to be able to do an analysis by sex or gender. Um, and one of the big problems is just that even though women are are usually included, for sure, um, these days, often that analysis isn't done or it's not included in the published study results that get, you know, published in medical journals. Um, so that's still a really big problem where, you know, it's, it's fine to in- women but if you're not actually doing that analysis you're not getting the, the knowledge that we really need there
0: um, right because they're and, still skirting around it it's like the analysis I didn't actually realize this but it's like when you're researching the, you call it or you don't call it but it's called the add women and stir right
1: yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah so
0: right go ahead
1: experts have said yeah it's that the approach the research community kind of took was like okay sure we'll add women and that and just stir and then that's it that's fine um and yeah that's not really getting us the data that we need um and then on and the other big issue is that that law only applied to late phase human clinical research and so when it comes to preclinical preclinical research so that is research done with animals or cell lines, it still has remained the norm to just use male animals, (laughs) and male mice, um, and really not pay attention to the sex at all. And that's really only started to change in the last few years. So in in 2014, the NIH sort of started to make that a priority and and now requires um, that researchers doing that kind of research also have to account for, for sex um, but, you know, in t- until then, it was it was sort of this kind of thing where it was there would be repeated calls uh, by researchers to say, you know, we really should be paying attention to this. Like we, we are increasingly seeing that there are often differences here. And yet you still have, you know, 80 percent of rodent drug trials use only male mice
0: right 2014 it's just crazy that this stuff is changing like so recently to me yeah um but i but i love this i i'm so interested in this and it's not just women this is like this is about race as well um i believe mm-hmm. right so i loved something that was mentioned in your book about <laughs> like putting the analysis, really separating the analysis, right? So women react this way, you know, elderly African-American men react this way. Um, And somebody had the idea to put that label like on – on the drug, mm-hmm. uh, what's it called? On the drug um, information or whatever. White women have X reaction. African American men have Y reaction. And to to list that, and I was like, that's brilliant. And it's probably never <laughs> going to happen, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, who knows? Yeah, I mean, that. So so now the the FDA does require that like that kind of information is is reported to them if it's collected, but it still doesn't actually require that pharmaceutical companies collect that information Um, and it's, you know, it it makes that information sort of publicly available um, online. So you can, you can actually go into the, I think it's called the drug snapshots Um, and at least for drugs moving forward, you'll be able to see, okay. Yeah. If how, how do side effects differ potentially? Um, by race or gender or age, right? But yes, uh, advocates have said, you know, it'd be really great to have that information actually on the label because who's gonna actually go as a patient to this <laughs> website to look that up, um, right? When you probably don't even know that that's even a thing, you know that 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 things could be different based on gender
0: i didn't yeah i had no idea up until this last year how under-researched women were um and what are some of the consequences of that like i i had Cindy anderson on the episode and we talked about a, a trial with estrogen and it wasn't done on any women <laughs> Yeah. And like we paid great consequences for that. Um, but what are some of the other consequences?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you can really see the consequences and some of the, the data on, um, adverse drug reactions. So women are 50 to 75% more likely to have an adverse drug reaction than men. Um, which yeah, is pretty, pretty remarkable. And, um, a lot of the drugs that have been pulled from the market have been, have been pulled because it was found that they were more harmful in women. Um, and you know, you should also kind of point out though that it's, it's also dangerous for men and and harmful to men too, that, that we're not sort of doing these analyses because men might be exposed to a drug that is more harmful to them too. And, um, or both of us sort of might miss out on a drug that potentially doesn't work for men but does work for women but if we don't notice that early in the sort of drug development you know we might just abandon it and not kind of go that route um and i i was really struck also by just how like how much knowledge has just been lost just kind of knowledge for the sake of knowledge you know because we haven't been studying women and understanding their bodies and and looking at these differences because figuring out the sort of why of why these differences might arise can really be a big clue to figuring out you know how drugs work or how disease mechanisms work you know and just kind of furthering our understanding of the human body Um, and so it's really kind of like really grading to me just as a sort of intellectual thing that this has been so so overlooked in such a blind spot because it has such potential to help us better understand these things to help everybody
0: right i know it feels like it just doesn't it just kind of doesn't make any sense it's not efficient <laughs> It's just so no efficient um <laughs> Yeah. So another, I mean, I pulled, So I, you should see the book. It's like tabbed and marked up and like this part and <laughs> this part, but um, something I read, women's illnesses are assumed psychosomatic until proven otherwise. Um, so let's shift a little bit into th- the history of hysteria. Yeah. And w- where where it comes from that women are hysterical. Like you write in the book, before hysteria was, was an emotional thing, it was considered a disease.
1: Yeah, I, I think when I started doing this research, and, and, and part of it was inspired by starting to hear stories from friends who were having health problems and, you know, having their symptoms dismissed as depression or anxiety or stress. I think I sort of thought like, oh, okay, this is, you know, yet another area where women are not taken as seriously and seen as emotional and, you know, and I think, I, I think that's true. It is very much connected to these sort of broader stereotypes we hold about women, but I was actually really surprised to realize just how much it seems rooted in this very particular history of hysteria Um that is very sort of deeply embedded in in medicine and medical knowledge. So for centuries, hysteria was considered a disease. And I think we can sort of look back on it now and and recognize that it was not so much you know a single disease, but this label that was applied to any mysterious symptoms that were happening in within women. Um, and for a while it was kind of attributed to a wandering womb and then that gave way to a theory about you know women's sensitive nerves and um but throughout that whole history it was seen as a physical disease until freud came along and then starting in the, the first half of the 20th century there was a real kind of transformation where it became not a physical disease, but this mental disorder that caused physical symptoms. And ever since then, medicine has sort of had this catch-all category of, of hysteria that, you know, has gotten new names over the years. So usually not, you're not actually diagnosed with hysteria these days, but, you know, you can trace the sort of history of what was called hysteria becomes called syndrome and then somatization disorder and conversion disorder. And, and these days we sort of talk about these symptoms as medically unexplained symptoms. And patients, of course, are usually told just, you know, it's stress or nothing's wrong with you or. Or <laughs> it's of, trauma. You- yeah, right. Exactly. Um And yet the, the, even though the terms have changed, it's, it's, the kind of concept itself that the unconscious mind can really produce these symptoms and that doctors can diagnose them essentially by, by default. So if a doctor can't come up with a medical explanation, you know, a physical disease that can account for the symptoms sort of by default, they assume that they are psychological. And I think that tendency has gotten so deeply embedded in medicine and really affects and harms lots of patients, but especially harms women, just because we have been sort of the typical patients with <laughs> hysterical symptoms for like a century now, you know? And, and so there's still this stereotype that that associates them very much with women. And as a lot of the book kind of focuses on, I hope showing the the way that the lack of knowledge that we have about women's health because we have been left out of so much research, really contributes to that lack of trust because the more that women are going to doctors and reporting symptoms that they can't explain, the more they are going to have this impression that women are hysterical and and their offices are filled with women who are reporting medically unexplained symptoms that they sort of understand as all in your head.
0: Right, and you give a lot of the stats like, that some one of the problems is that pe- doctors are just undereducated on, on a bunch of diseases that mostly affect women. So mm-hmm. there's like a lack of education around things like ME and CFS and autoimmune diseases and, you know, so that's one of the problems. Um, but right. I just want to state that women are diagnosed with... Quote unquote hysteria, whatever it's called today, medically unexplained symptoms, um, not just when they have rare symptoms, but when they're having Mm -hmm. a heart attack, when they have cancer, when they have appendicitis. (laughs) Like, (laughs) women are. That's what shocked me, actually, reading your book, was that it wasn't like it wasn't my, you know, my symptoms of like extreme fatigue, muscle and joint pain and like heart palpitations. It was women that were like, clearly having a heart attack that were being sent away from the ER. Right. (laughs) Right.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's what the stat is that Younger women, women under 55 were in one study were seven times more likely to be sent home from the hospital in the middle of heart, having a heart attack as other patients. Um, yeah, they, they, women wait longer to get an EKG when they're having a heart attack. They wait longer to get pain medication for pain in the emergency room. And they, yeah, they do experience these longer diagnostic delays for a range of conditions from brain tumors to cancer to rare diseases and to diseases like autoimmune diseases that are actually, you know, more common in in women. So I think that was really notable to me to see that, you know, even these diseases that should be sort of stereotyped as like women's diseases and should be really sort of on the radar on doctor's radars things that you should be kind of at the top of your brain when you see you know a woman of of childbearing age reporting fatigue like you would think that maybe the first thing to rule out would be an autoimmune disease given how common they are and yet men get diagnosed with most autoimmune disease faster than women do. (laughs) It's
0: crazy. Um, Yeah, there are so many stories in your book from women that are just like gut-wrenching and I couldn't believe how many stories of women getting sent home from the ER and how many times I could look back over my life and and see like – Oh yeah, that happened to me too. And mm. I have a story more like yours too. Just to be clear, like I was diagnosed really quickly. I had really typical symptoms, um, but because I've seen doctors for the last four years so consistently, I've I've um, I've I've racked up the experiences of being ignored. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so one of the things that I just wanna wanna read um, that really stood out to me was about migraines. Um, Mm. I had no idea that migraines were doubted. Like as, as real, I thought, I thought that was clearly everyone believed in migraines. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But it's something, it's something like, I don't remember exactly like 40% of doctors still, of people in the medical field still don't believe that they're, that that
1: they're. that might have been from a, a little while ago. I'm not sure what the the current status is. The current status.
0: Is. Okay, but there's so in the 1930s, the, the Harold G. Wolff, the father of modern medicine or modern headache research, um started studying cuz he had migraines himself. So he started studying men with migraines, and he came up with, based on interview with used with patients, he came up with a sort of emotional prototype of a man that gets migraines. And mm-hmm. he said, um, "This is the part, by the way, that I've just been just like telling everyone. I'm like, you <laughs> have to hear this. It's crazy." <laughs> um, so, the migraine personality in men um, is pretty positive. He says that they are perfectionists. They have, um, they're responsible, conscientious, and reliable people. And because of their perfectionist tendencies, they have these migraine attacks, right? Mm -hmm. And that's so lovely. And for women, (laughs) for women, um, he said that it's because of their inability to accept her feminine role, particularly in sex. <laughs> and whenever yep. whenever a woman is having three attacks of a migraine per week, it means that she is either psychopathic or else she is overworking or worrying or fretting or otherwise using her brain wrongly. <laughs> that, yep. that is something. That is something. So I mean and that's and that's not like that's not like a rare standout point in the book it's like 300 pages of of research like that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the the theory that lots of things were because of the inability to accept a feminine role was was quite popular for a time.
0: <laughs> right. Um And what you say that I think is so interesting too is like stereotypes usually come – they are usually based in truth, right? Um, There's a reason why stereotypes exist, but the stereotype of women being hysterical or like making up symptoms or – that is actually not based in any truth.
1: Right. Yeah. It's really not. Um, Yeah. It was was interesting to sort of delve into the research on that where – particularly the sort of stereotype that I think is is a little is related to the kind of like hysterical stereotype but more specifically the the sort of idea that women seek medical care more readily than men um, which is very much sort of rooted in this stereotype mostly about men where we kind of they're like, oh, yeah, you know, men hate to go to the doctor, they'll, you know, suffer through anything rather than admit that they need their need help. And, and so there's sort of this assumption that men are so reluctant to go to the doctor, that really kind of benefits them, because when they do go to the doctor, then it's assumed that like, okay, well, something must really be wrong, or else you wouldn't be here. Um, But what's so fascinating is that that somehow leads to this like contrasting stereotype that women go to the doctor for you know minor things or too readily which doesn't make any like rational sense like even if men are more reluctant that doesn't mean that like women are going too too frequently you know you should still be taking women seriously um you know and just assuming that they're going when they need to go you know right right Uh, but yeah, when you really actually question those assumptions and not just kind of take them on faith, uh, it turns out that when you do the comparison, do studies that ask, you know, okay, so if men and women are experiencing the same disease or the same symptom, um, how long do they wait before they seek medical care? And and it's not clear that women as a rule, go any quicker than men do. Um, it's so these stereotypes, yeah, have just totally kind of become entrenched based on very flimsy evidence.
0: Right. Wow, and I will note something else that you you delve into is that women have taken to taking a male with them to the doctor's appointments or to the ER to be taken more seriously, and it works. Right. And and some women take their sons. Like, it's not, you know, their partners, their husbands, their fathers, their sons, like... Yeah, um, I
1: found this so sad and, yeah, so disturbing. And I think especially for, like, women our age... Uh, You know, younger millennial women who sort of have been raised with an expectation that like will be taken seriously to sort of come up against that and, and have that experience of being like, oh, wait, I have this feeling that like what I really need here is to have a male who's kind of like affirming my sanity or like reinforcing what I'm saying in this encounter and then to find when they do do that that it's that it works you know that they there is a real shift in how they're treated is i think really shocking and disappointing especially for for women our age
0: Totally i so i totally agree with you This information is <laughs> is so hard to take in and you wrote this and and it was your life for a long time i imagine so was it was this hard to write did you have did you have kind of breakdowns? <laughs> huh.
1: um, yeah, I mean, it was it was definitely hard to write. It was uh, I mean, partly just because it was my first book and I had no idea how to write a book, so um, mm-hmm. it was yeah, it was a big challenge. And it, I think I was I felt a lot of pressure because I was learning so much that I thought was really eye opening and important, mm-hmm. and felt like I really wanted to you know do do it justice uh and was feeling like it would be nice to have (laughs) this be my second book so I wasn't sort of right learning how to write a book at the same time that I was writing this one that I felt should be really important but um yeah I mean it was you know I the stories were heartbreaking the research was infuriating there was a lot of Times, especially doing the like research on hysteria where I really had like a sort of meta experience of being like wait am I the crazy one here like it's just so mind-blowing that like more people haven't kind of criticized this concept and like there's just you, when you kind of delve into that research there's just this like pervasive acceptance of it within the medical literature that was like really making me feel crazy Mm because I was like this is so clearly bullshit but yet everybody's talking as if it's not you know
0: oh my god yeah so I want to talk about self-care within this so let's take a quick break for the weekly challenge welcome to our weekly challenge segment where we arm you with new tools each week to kick some self-care butt As you explore all of these new options presented weekly, my hope is that you will come to collect a number of quick ways to take care of yourself inside and out. You will essentially have your very own and very handy self-care toolkit. Some of the challenges may not work for you and some will seem perfectly tailored to you. We are building up your defenses, inspiring your mind, body, and spirit toward total wellness. Keep in mind that the goal is always progress, not perfection. The only rule is that you are never allowed to beat yourself up. Keep me posted on your progress. Stay accountable. It helps. Okay, let's hit this week's challenge. Okay, yeah, perfect. The weekly challenge this week, we're going to talk about getting enough sleep and um, having healthy circadian rhythms. So talk a little about, a little bit about your experience with, with getting sleep while writing this book and what you're trying to do now.
1: Yeah, so yeah, as I said, the book was such a challenge, and I really kind of, I I had sort of developed some pretty good self-care habits after getting the RA, um, but really sort of abandoned some of them during this time, and it really, really drove home how important it is to stick to that, Um, uh, so yeah, the stress was just really kind of keeping me up at night for a while and, and eventually kind of really had pushed my my sleep schedule so I was having trouble sleeping and then was like couldn't get up in the morning and it was just like miserable um and it, that was the first time I had any troubles with sleeping and really kind of made me totally sympathetic to like any <laughs> anybody who has sleep troubles because it was just such a nightmare um but I I successfully Got back on track, and I'm trying to recommit to that now that I am getting busy and traveling a lot. I can kind of just feel myself staying up watching Netflix t- too mm. late, and so um, my I'm going to commit to getting off the screens at 10 p.m. every night, um, so that I can, you know, keep keep free of the the blue light that interferes with with getting good sleep.
0: Right, that's awesome. So 10 p.m. Your idea is to get in bed at 10 p.m. What time do you get up in the morning? Do you make sure you get the 8 hours or do you set an alarm? Yeah, I usually
1: I set an alarm usually for 7. Um so yeah, I usually get at least
0: 8 hours. And that's so good. I do have sleep trouble. And that all came with Lyme for me. So mm, so mm-hmm. sleep has been, I, was in, I had crazy insomnia for like two years. I mean, it yeah. was absolute hell. And I'm like you, I never had sleep trouble before in my life. And yeah. so when it started, I was like, oh my God, how do people survive this? <laughs> like, yeah. so I think, and right now I'm not having that same trouble, but I am, you know, Practicing getting to bed at the same time every night, mm-hmm. so I love this challenge. And the challenge really is, guys, to get in bed at 10 p.m. or a time that you feel fit for you to turn screens off sometime before that or at that time, and you know, stay consistent on that schedule for the week. Yeah, um, it
1: definitely helps to be consistent. I found for sure.
0: Right. So that's, it's a great challenge. I'm going to do it. My goal is also 10 PM, um, because I'm finding I want to be up earlier and earlier. So this is so great. Thank you for that. And on more, um, self care and ways that we can be empowered within this situation. uh, I just want to say we're, women are such badasses. Like (laughs) the book was sad, but it also showed me how amazing women are, uh, you know, we we know when something's wrong with our bodies and we fight to be heard. Case in point, you guys, Lyme disease mm-hmm. was discovered thanks to, um, Maya, what you say, two persistent women who questioned medical authority to bring attention to an outbreak of a mysterious disease in their small town of Lyme, Connecticut. Like, mm-hmm. we can thank a couple of women for that, as for a lot of other things. Um, mm-hmm. So what are some of the ways we can today you know fight for the equality within this system
1: um yeah i think that you know in addition to just kind of individually fighting for the care you deserve which i have been you know in these interviews really hesitant to kind of give individual advice because i think that this is such a systemic problem that you know it shouldn't be on our shoulders to solve and it shouldn't be up to women to kind of become these really empowered self-advocates who have to do like so much research on their own and to go to a million doctors and yet you know the reality is that often is what is required of you Um, but collectively you know I think that we do need just so much more research on these conditions that have been really neglected um, like chronic Lyme persistent Lyme and other contested illnesses like fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome that are very clearly been neglected because they affect women you know that they have been sort of stereotyped in this way and and really just ignored by researchers um, so I think advocating for more research funding from the federal government is really important. I think that there is, you know, a lot still to be done just in closing the the sort of loopholes and, and inadequacies and the policies around, as we're talking about getting not getting women to be not only included but analyzing the results to see if they're sex and gender differences. And also to get that information really integrated into medical education. That was something that as a lay person learning about how the system worked, I was really shocked to realize that, you know, even though we have so much information that's come out over the last 25 years, as we've started to focus more on these issues, so much of that is still not being taught in medical schools, because it just takes a really long time to get curricula updated. And so I think that there's a lot of potential for kind of patient demand um, to spur the the powers that be within academic medicine to make that happen, because there is a lot of knowledge that we just aren't benefiting from yet.
0: Right. Are there any um, foundations we can donate to if we want to support this uh, this cause and this change, but, but don't necessarily have the time to do it ourselves?
1: Yeah. Um, let's see. So the, the sex and gender women's health collaborative is, is one of the groups that's sort of on the forefront of, of making that change within medical education and, bringing together the stakeholders who are in charge of the curricula to to get this on the radar and and so that would be something to support the society for women's health research have has been doing this since since the early 90s um advocating for more research and kind of compiling a lot of the knowledge that we do have um The National Women's Health Network is awesome and one of the only organizations, I think maybe the only that doesn't take any uh, pharma money and so is really very independent minded and in kind of the way they evaluate um, treatment options and stuff. And so and they've also been around doing this for a long time.
0: Cool. Oh, perfect. That's great list. Um, And how can we support each other in the meantime? I read in the back of your book, it talks about how the internet has changed a lot for us. And, you know, I definitely I'm so happy that so many women speak out about their stories. Uh, Is that Mm -hmm. something that you that you think is really beneficial for women to be doing right now?
1: Yeah, I think it's so, so important. I think that um, I didn't really realize until I was doing these interviews, just how much silence I think there is around these experiences. And I think there are so many women who, you know, have a frustrating, dismissive experience at the doctors and and just keep it to themselves because they either because they internalize that or they assume it was just bad luck or that they could have done something better to advocate for themselves. So it was their fault. Um, And I think one of the consequences is that we all sort of have this impression that it it must be just us. And yet, once you start sharing those stories, you see that it's not, that that these experiences are so common. There are so many of us who have the same kinds of experiences. And I think it's really powerful for women to see that and to kind of have those experiences validated. And I think it's also really important for healthcare providers to see that, because I think So much of the problem is rooted in in just kind of a lack of feedback about how widespread and pervasive this issue is. And and so to the extent that we can sort of have cultivate a sort of Me Too movement around these issues by saying, you know, no, this is this is really pervasive. And almost any woman who has a serious health problem has probably encountered these problems, um, I think that that has a real, real chance of, of really shifting
0: the conversation. That's amazing. Yeah. I'm inspired to speak out more and to donate and to do what I can. Um, cause it has Good. been a nightmare sometimes <laughs> there are times where it has just been like, yeah, so hard to be heard. Um, and I'm a yeah. person who has like positive blood test results and like an immune disorder that is widely recognized as yeah. as real, you know, like but but in order to get um in order to get the treatment I needed for my immune disorder, for instance, um, mm. I couldn't have Lyme disease written on any of the paperwork. Mm, mm-hmm.
1: Oh, yeah, it's so
0: absurd. The L word, the dirty L word. Yeah, um Yeah. So, anyway, this has been so validating and eye-opening for me, and I really, really hope that everybody picks up a copy of this book or listens to it on on Is there an audiobook version? Yes,
1: there is. Yeah, it's on Audible.
0: Amazing. Listen to an audiobook version. Um listen to this interview, uh, do what you can to get involved in this. And where can people uh, get in touch with you or find you?
1: Uh, You can find me on Twitter at Maya Dusenberry or um, on my website at com.
0: Amazing. And I will be including an Amazon link for the book and links to your Twitter and your website. Um, Is there anything else you wanted to leave us with?
1: I don't think so. Thank you so much for this wonderful interview and for the work you're doing on these issues
0: thank you Maya thank you so much all right guys we'll see you next week Thank you so much for listening to Healing Out Loud. Please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Find me at Shea Jackie on Instagram, my favorite social media platform. And follow me at JackieShay.com if you want to stay in touch. You can also write to me through jackieshay.com if you're interested in working with me as your trusted wellness companion. I'm always happy to hear from you with any questions, comments, or concerns. You can also join the Healing Out Loud with Jackie Shay Facebook group. Have an amazing week, you kick-ass humans. I hope you're able to implement what you learned this week, and I can't wait to share more. Bye.